0: There's almost an endless number of ways to extract data from heavy equipment, whether it's applying sensors for vibration or temperature, whether it's looking at movement or in manufacturing, maybe looking at output, or an energy plant, maybe looking at output. There's so many ways to pull data from heavy industry systems. How do we actually do that in a way that generates value? That's the topic of this week's episode of the AI and Business Podcast. We interview Manuel Terranova, who's the CEO of Pixie. Pixie works with companies in the battery space, as well as the heavy industry space, including defense, to leverage predictive analytics on their data from their heavy equipment. We talk about a number of use cases. So if you're interested in using data from heavy equipment, whether you're in the battery space, whether you are in manufacturing, whether you're in energy, there's a lot of uh, use cases covered in this particular episode. We also talk about the same kind of applications in defense. I know a lot of our listeners are interested in defense innovations. Towards the end of the episode, we talk about what that'll look like. Manuel speaks to us about kind of high-level big picture. How do we think through and think about getting value from heavy industry data? Something with predictive value, something that's going to help us make smarter business decisions, to make more money or save money. What's the process of thinking through that? This is something Pixie's had to develop themselves over the course of a lot of different deployments in defense and otherwise. And Manuel walks us through that. And he also goes through some great use cases to actually kind of see what does it look like in what circumstances to apply artificial intelligence to these data streams to generate value for the business. Again, towards the end of the episode, we talk more about defense in the future there as well. So I think there's something for everybody in this episode, and I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, this is Manuel with Peeksy here in the AI and Business Podcast. So Manuel, I know we're going to be talking about so the value of data for expensive equipment or you know heavy industry, defense, et cetera. I wanted to start off by talking about just what the predictive value of data in that space is broadly. This is really your area of expertise. Maybe you could start us off by just talking about why it's valuable in the first place.
1: Well, I see the value of predictive touching every part of the enterprise and it doesn't really matter whether it's private sector or whether we're talking defense or other government functions. I do see more senior folks in private sector enterprise really focused on the big things that matter. Uh, Big things that matter could be, for example, inventory management and inventory staging. Big things that matter could include, let's say, getting invoices out at the right time Middle managers that we meet with are more focused on long-term value that predictive can bring, uh, specifically predicting when equipment needs intervention or when equipment is about to fail. And those are challenges that take a little bit more time. They are generally what I would call a, a phase two or a phase three Type of objective. Whereas these broader senior level manager issues such as inventory, logistics, billing, revenue, these are nearer phase one and phase two objectives that we like to fold into our statements of work.
0: And yeah, maybe you can talk about kind of the phases with which this rolls out. Obviously, overhauling data, getting particularly predictive value from data, you know, it's not an overnight process. Obviously, there's you know workflows to change and maybe you know, formats of data, et cetera, to, to work with. Can you talk a little bit about what maturity looks like there to work our way towards predictive value?
1: Sure. We're an agile shop. So we believe in delivering value in 120-day increments. Uh, we run the entire company on a single two-week sprint that covers all our customers. And generally, when I'm sitting at a customer location, I've got three proponents and one skeptic at the table. And the challenge with uh, convincing the skeptics and the naysayers is to put value into the roadmap as soon as you can. And generally, we try to do that in 120 days, if not less, uh, type of timeframe. This is an incremental approach. There is a lot of data hygiene that needs to be confronted in the first 120 days of any uh, machine learning type engagement. And I've stopped apologizing to investors about that, by the way. It is a high-touch business, uh, the business that we're in. I mean, these assets are large, mission-critical, have multi-decades of life. Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're a Fortune 100 or a startup. We see challenges around managing the data landscape, especially when you think about managing the data landscape by a serialized thread, And my big lesson from my days in in large rotating equipment and batteries is there's no two assets that come off the production line that are equivalent. This is true for steam turbines or gas turbines or gearboxes or wing sections of major aircraft. They are so complex and so unique that if you don't understand your data by a serial number and you don't manage that data footprint by serial number over the life of the equipment, you really um, have a lot of work to do on the hygiene front before you can get to advanced analytics like machine learning. So typically, I try to set customer expectations early around understanding data landscape, understanding the ingest points, understanding how we're going to model the data and make it a queryable or give it parameters that we can uh, then work with down the line for machine learning and. Yeah, it takes a bit of time in those first 120 days to get it all sorted. And often customers are surprised at how much work actually has to be done with their data before we get it into yeah. a condition where machine learning can be applied.
0: Yeah, and it, well and I think that uh you know some folks could see that purely as a hurdle, like you said, you know, you, you don't apologize for it anymore. I think it's right that you don't because it's also maturity. I think the companies that get this stuff down pat and can deliver value from it regularly, it's not just useful for one application, but this would be the future of how business operates. So we're sort of hopefully building the kinds of capabilities that'll be useful in the long run. But you talked about these 120 day increments. That's pretty ambitious stuff. You guys have obviously been working in this space for quite some time. When you determine what you're going to work on in a span of time like that, it must be about being able to narrow down to you know a, a bite that you think you can handle. Does that really imply picking the kinds of machines? You, know, you mentioned serial number. You know the kinds of machines you want to narrow your focus to, or the types of data, or specific types of telemetry you want to pull off those machines. Because I can imagine a big you know uh, manufacturing plant, or you know a wind turbine, or whatever it is that you folks work on. I know there's a variety of types of equipment. There's almost an unlimited number of places to start. How do you think through those early
1: sprints? Well, I do think about data landscape quite a bit. I think about aggregating what I call the three crown jewels of industrial data. And it's probably worth uh, spending a a minute on those. Let's do it. Um, Yeah, let's do it. So by unstructured, I mean uh, assets are living as files, not in a relational database. Although we deal with a lot of structured data, obviously. But the harder part of the equation, the predictive equation is getting getting a hold of and accessing those unstructured crown jewels. And they are, to me, three. Number one in heavy industry, engineering-centric companies, geometry, the drawings, the schematics, the P&IDs. The second crown jewel data set yet you have to access to get predictive is the simulation data set and uh, that may be finite element analysis, computational fluid dynamics, structural analysis. Those simulations have validated a specific geometry. And so, you need to be able to couple them over the lifecycle of the asset. And the third big one, which I think gets a lot of the attention, is telemetry, sensor data, IoT data. And to me, in the industrial world, that comes from two sources. It's generally at the test cell. So before the equipment ships and is put into a production environment, it generally is tested and baseline data is captured. We find many companies don't do a good job at managing that baseline telemetry data set. And of course, that's a baseline data set that you want for training and for tuning algorithms down the line. And then telemetry from infield field is a problem that's becoming truly, truly big data now, unlike maybe five Mm. or seven years ago. And that telemetry from the field problem is obviously multi-decades, and it gets challenging. In battery domains, we're now finding that batteries are the richest producers of industrial data, and that has to do with the fact that you need very many batteries and uh, they are all individually serialized, and they all need to be tracked. And the telemetry is coming in at one hertz. So you know, a major battery installation is going to involve uh, twenty or 40,000 individual batteries, each generating quite a bit of data. So even a small, modest battery farm is going to generate a couple gigabytes of data per day. So managing that and running algorithms against that on an ongoing streaming basis is is, is demanding. So those three crown jewel data sets is typically where I start with customers, and we spend a lot of time in the first 120 days getting that part of the equation right. Got
0: it. So yeah, thinking big picture. And then I imagine that landscape allows you to drill down and say, Hey, look, when it comes to where we want to work on your data maturity, what kinds of data we want to work on intake and harmonization and delivering some value out of, you know, even just, even just visualizing it, Never mind getting predictive with it. I imagine you you need the landscape first so that you know, and can agree maybe with the customer as to what's going to be step one on this roadmap of, of data maturity. Is that, is that the right way of thinking about it?
1: That's the right way, Dan. I mean, often in our initial engagements with customers, we force them to think of bottom line metrics that matter to their business. So for a battery company that's trying to develop a new electrolyte, and this is a real use case that we've worked on, it was all about creating a composite score that would allow them to, in a bottom line metric kind of way, understand whether the electrolyte recipe they just ran was effective and met the company criteria or not. When it comes to wind turbines, and we've done a lot of work on wind turbines, uh, we try to talk about each mast, if you will, quote unquote, and its revenue generation for a particular business, for a particular operator. In the inventory context, uh, obviously, we're trying to help manage inventory so that they're efficiently used. So that means determining what should be staged near an oil rig in the middle of the desert versus a depot that might be uh, 200 miles away and coming up with metrics that uh demonstrate that we're doing a better job at positioning the equipment.
0: Yeah, and, and in terms of, you know, some examples of of, you know, doing a better job or examples of this this sort of private sector value of this crown jewel data, I'd love to touch on one or two of those. I think a lot of the folks tuned in may or may not all of them operate in heavy industry. Um, Certainly, they know what batteries are, but not not the same challenges of sort of working with them as you do. Can you maybe walk through, whether it be a turbine or a battery farm as you would articulated, what it looks like to begin getting predictive with these? I'd love to paint a mental picture in the private sector side of what you guys do for the audience today.
1: Sure, and I think batteries are such a great use case because it's gonna have such relevance in the DoD context as well. Cool, cool. So batteries, one thing that people don't appreciate about battery manufacturing is it's fickle. Batteries are delicate, individualized creatures in my opinion. Electrochemistry is a tricky, tricky, tricky business. So you need to understand the bill of material of your battery if you're ever going to get to a predictive warranty regime. And uh, that means having material traceability throughout the entire bill of materials that may go into a battery. And surprisingly for most people, a bill of material for a battery is going to have 60, 65, 70 different independent line items in it. And so that traceability becomes really important because if you're going to have a fleet issue, you want to identify very quickly which serial numbers are impacted so you can act quickly. So starting with the manufacturing supply chain and traceability, if you want to get to real condition-based maintenance regime, that traceability is important. Then, I think second, I would think about, Dan, testing and getting that baseline test that I was mentioning earlier. Batteries, are just another industrial asset that gets tested and vetted before it's put out into the field. We want that baseline test data. We absolutely want that baseline test data because it lets us get to ROI for machine learning much more quickly than without it. And then batteries operate in a system and uh, batteries are put into strings, and string controllers manage that string, and then there's uh, strings are wrapped up into energy blocks, and there's many energy blocks in a battery farm. So your ability to uh, capture from 20,000 individual serialized batteries, string data information, block level information, be able to track those statistics, some are derived, some are directly from the equipment and telemetry that's embedded in the equipment itself is a lot of work you know capturing data at 1 hertz across 3000 registers for that many assets is a is truly a big data challenge so you have to get your data landscaping your data modeling right on day 1 in order to get to predictive
0: who's got these farms i mean i, I can only imagine not necessarily operating in the battery world as my modus operandi here sort of where farms of that kind would be used in what industries, you know, whether it be you know, utilities or you know, what have you. I, I can only come up with imaginary examples here. I, obviously, you mentioned this is relevant for defense. What's an example of where one of these farms would exist? This kind of company would use it for this kind of a use case,
1: just for people who are less familiar. So Imagine a battery integrator battery integrator is probably not manufacturing batteries or buying them from one of the major battery players. They're integrating those batteries into a system and then deploying it to a utility company, for example, who's going to operate that battery farm. And clearly, uh, the integrators are somewhere in the middle in the dynamic of making sure the equipment lives up to certain warranty expectations. And there's liquidated damages involved if the equipment doesn't perform up to snuff. The operators, on the other hand, you know, sign up to certain warranty conditions and operating conditions, and they need to be respected. So, all this traceability and predictability really has incredible bottom-line impact because if you can help the OEM manage liquidated damages or do a better job at telling the end user, hey, you're operating the equipment out of warranty and that means your batteries are going to degrade much more quickly are you sure you want to do that that's a really valuable conversation for the integrator to have with the end user got it okay so that's
0: a, that's an example of who might leverage this and i think that's useful context again just for the folks who might not exactly know oh you know where would these exist and who would use them how i know we also wanted to swivel into the defense side of things you folks have worked for a long time now with the, the DoD on various projects, and this is kind of part of your market as well. Can you talk a little bit about the value generated from equipment and machinery in defense? I know you work with sort of expensive equipment that spins. You obviously work with batteries. Uh, again, to put that in a mental picture for folks, what, what does that look like in defense and what are some of the upsides of leveraging that data?
1: Obviously, the DOD relies on big equipment that spins and they and batteries are absolutely ubiquitous in the defense world. Absolutely ubiquitous. I think also in particular, uh, when we think about autonomous vehicles, and obviously there's a huge push across the uh, armed forces to do more autonomy, including in particular the Navy, propulsion and battery have a really big role to play there. So the value, it gets back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, sure, predictive is an objective. And, you know, especially in the context of autonomy. Condition-based maintenance and being able to predict how the equipment's going to perform is even more essential because you don't have the option of being reactive. So, the value here is, of course, increasing availability of the equipment at the end of the day, what the DOD will call A sub O, and availability is king. And so, condition-based maintenance regimes appear in just about every autonomous white paper I've read. And to me, that is the value is you get better reliability and you get better availability and therefore you're able to accomplish the mission better. Uh, In the private sector, we're thinking about margins and revenue. Obviously, in the DOD context, we're thinking about the mission. And it gets back to also what I said earlier, you know, the senior folks in DOD, they are focused on the big trends, you know, inventory and logistics. And I do believe those are, the areas where machine learning is going to provide initial value. I think predictive is going to come a, as a third and fourth phase to this uh, journey that the DOD's on. And so, you know, I listened to, for example, former uh, Chief of Naval Operations Richardson address the uh, Senate committee and uh, he talks about digital twins and he says, you know, these are complex uh, mechanisms that we're using to solve banal issues. Like how do we stage inventory? Uh, What do we put on vessel? What do we keep at quayside, What do we keep in a depot that may be uh, uh, hundreds of miles away? And how do we do that most efficiently? So I think the impact Dan is going to be applying machine learning to these big decade old problems like inventory management, like ensuring the equipment longevity by keeping within operating norms and things of that nature. And then in a few years' time, I think we'll evolve to specifically predicting availability and performance for a specific serial number. And that's when things are really going to get exciting.
0: Yeah, and, and obviously private or public sector, there's a tremendous amount of value there. I'm even just thinking for some of the folks who might be tuned in. You know, you mentioned batteries being ubiquitous in defense. Certainly, we have defense folks who are you know tune into the show. Uh, people who we've even interviewed on the program. You know, when when I think anecdotally around, all right, well, where where are batteries in defense? I guess drones, certainly part of the mix here. You know, certain kinds of autonomous vehicles, certainly part of the mix all kinds of equipment out in the field from, I don't know, radios, et cetera, et cetera. Where else are, are sort of the big battery concerns in, in the DOD? You know, the places where there's so much battery power, they've really got to pay attention to this kind of stuff. Where where are those kind of
1: sub-areas? Well, the big one I think is propulsion, particularly when it comes to autonomous vehicles. And and again, I go back to what I said earlier, batteries are fickle and how the battery tests in the lab has nothing to do with how the batteries actually used in the field. And that's a recurring theme I see with all our battery customers. And I think the same can be said for propulsion systems in autonomous vehicles. You know, if you're running the vehicle in Arctic uh, climate, that battery is going to have a different degradation curve than if you're running it in really hot ambient conditions. And so understanding these exogenous factors and tying them into your machine learning algorithm on a serialized basis is going to be very important to kind of reach predictability around those assets. So propulsion to me is a big, big battery challenge that has to get confronted in the context of autonomy.
0: Got it, okay. The last question I had here is around sort of what you think the future of defense readiness will be, so how AI will change maybe workflows or possibilities in defense, you know if we give ourselves a little bit of time to mature, you know five years ahead or so, what do you think that future is like? what what kinds of new normals exist around the integration of things like ml to get us somewhere better in a defense context?
1: So uh, that's a great that's a great question. I think one big area is obviously data integration. And you know the DoD, like so many other large enterprises, has a lot of structures and siloed constructs. And unfortunately, machine learning um, wants to traverse siloed constructs. And obviously, there's the uh, big question of security and how do you safely treat the data. So, the tension I see in the system is going to be around how data traverses organizations so that machine learning models can be more effective at predicting equipment reliability and availability. So, that's, I think, one big theme is data integration, forcing the kind of a stovepipe structures to integrate better. That's just going to be a tension in the system that has to get confronted. I think the other thing I would bring up is uh Dev... SecOps. I see a big transformation occurring inside the DoD right now, uh, something that came out of the Air Force called Kessel Run. That group has uh, managed to establish uh, DevSecOps, and uh, that model has now been, let's say, distributed across all of DoD and were participants in that effort as well. And There, I see the DoD really starting to embrace agile, and you know the ability to redeploy code on a piece of military equipment without going through all the Traditional approval processes, because you're participating in a DevSecOps program for the DoD, is extremely exciting for us, and it allows the agile model to work inside the DoD context, which means smaller companies like pixie can get in the game. Yeah, and that's our secret weapon, right? Is is speed and and obviously bringing competence to bear on a specific problem, and that's how we compete against the bigger guys. There's no doubt. So that DevSecOps piece is, I think, the second one. And the third one I would say, Dan, is self-service. I think the guys that win here are going to enable DOD folks to tune their own algorithms five years from now, to be able to understand their own data streams and experiment and create their own IP on how to utilize the data coming off the equipment and actually perfecting machine learning and other algorithms and statistical processes to make their equipment more reliable. So I actually see a distribution of capability around the DoD and increasing the number of people who can actually develop algorithms for the Department of Defense five years from now versus today. So that's, that's a third trend line that I see. And of course, we embrace that. Our mission, I believe, is to enable our customers, including the DOD, to develop their own algorithms. Um, We've just recently released a module called Machine Learning Manager, which basically precipitates the functionality we've always had in the product, but now allows you, the end user, to make better sense of your data, shape your data, and actually test different algorithms against your data set. So I see the Navy and the rest of the DOD participating to a much greater extent in actually creating tuned algorithm for their equipment fleets. Got it. So I, I, these three points you just brought
0: up, I'll kind of poke into these a little bit as we wrap up here, just to really flesh out some some detail. But the, what you mentioned about the efforts to bring the little guys into the DoD, that's definitely a, a huge, huge push. I mean, we, we've we've done our own research on sort of the totality of AI funding initiatives in the, in the public sector, uh, DOD and otherwise. And massive, massive amount of that push is, can we get closer to the people who are really innovating? Can we get closer to the smaller companies and make it easier to work with the folks on the bleeding edge? Certainly bodes well for you guys, even bodes well for market research firms like us. So on the aggregate, I think that's a, a good trend. You mentioned sort of the breakdown of the stove pipes within defense. I think the folks that work in defense are you know will know darn well what you mean by that, how siloed off different facets of the DOD are in terms of you know data. When you think about what's going to have to happen to get that broken down, do you think it's just going to be a cultural understanding? It's going to be enough precedence of value from small changes that they're willing to make the big changes? What's going to make that shift happen to really open things up five years out?
1: So we've been in meetings where, of course, we've proposed systems that would allow the end user could be a sailor could be a, somebody in uh, the army actually being able to order a part for a piece of equipment in field order a part based on a recommendation that's coming from a software solution and you know that's a little bit of a glass shattering groundbreaking concept that somebody in the field a warrior in the field could actually push a button and order a spare part and make it appear a month later or weeks later or days later. Classic segregation line in, in DOD and in and in private sector enterprises, the ordering function, that is the, the guys controlling the supply of spare parts from the guys who are actually operating the equipment in the field. I think those two elements need to be brought together. I don't think our adversaries are necessarily, you know, with younger militaries are necessarily encumbered by these traditional stovepipes. So to me. We have to think about integrating the supply of spares with the equipment in a much more efficient way, three years from now, five years from now, if we're going to compete effectively on the battlefield. So that's a big cultural change I hope to see. And that's something that I talk about when I meet with uh, DOD folks uh, in particular. I think the other thing that needs to change is the digital data stream has to be contracted into these large hardware and iron contracts you know how do you do predictive and how do you get the value if you don't actually own the data stream coming out of the hardware and so there's a lot of work to be done i think in in military circles to ensure that You're not just buying the iron, you're buying the data stream that comes with the iron over the next 20, 30, 40 years. And we know in some cases, like the B-52, the equipment's going to be in field for 80 years. So your ability to control the data stream and own the data stream so that you can do your own machine learning, I think is essential for the DoD going forward.
0: Yeah. So does this simply mean maybe we can end on this point just for kind of a a take home for, for the folks in this space? Does this mean just understanding the value of data and knowing that, hey, when we're buying this piece of equipment, we want to make sure we have control over visibility of the ability to use the data that's going to come along with it and that our acquisition of physical stuff is as much also about really owning and being able to leverage the valuable digital signals that come off of it? Is that just something that needs to
1: maybe become part of the procurement
0: process or, or just part of the mindset of buyers?
1: It's both. And I do see a change now versus, let's say, two and a half, three years ago. I think the awareness is now there. And that's the good news. The challenge is, of course, This is large industrial equipment. It takes time. It's a long cycle business, if you will. And so before we reap the rewards of these contracts just being better worded and the DOD doing a better job of asserting itself over these uh, data rights, if you will, that's coming. I see the change and I think it'll be upon us within two or three years. So I think that one is definitely getting fixed. Then there's the other cultural challenges that we, we talked about. And I see those being addressed as well. This um, platform one example, which I encourage people to take a look at, is, I think, indicative of what we're going to see out of the DoD. And I tell you, it feels a lot more like an agile enterprise than it did three years ago. So I see good things happening, generally speaking. Well, th- there's certainly enough
0: initiatives pushing forward. And I think there's more true innovators they are starting to interact with the DOD. So I've got my fingers crossed the same as you and see some promising stuff as well. And I wanted to make sure I could flesh out that detail. Manuel, I know that's all we had for time, but thanks so much for being able to share both the private and public sector side of what you folks do. This has been great.
1: Dan, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business podcast. I hope you've enjoyed your time with us here. If you do like the show, be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It means the world to my team and also its feedback that we use to help continue to improve the show. We're doing two episodes a week now. Uh, in large part because of feedback from reviewers and people that reached out to me on LinkedIn. So let us know what you like most and what you want to see more of. Just go to Apple Podcasts, or used to be called iTunes, and type in AI in Business. Make sure you're subscribed on iTunes if you're not already, and drop us a review. It sure would mean the world. I'm often including those reviews in our email newsletter, so you might see your name there too. Uh, if you drop us a kind word. And again, that feedback means a lot to the team too. So we appreciate your thoughts and perspectives and making the show what it is now. We have more listeners this month than literally any other month in the history of the show. So glad to see things growing. And that's due in large part to you all helping us to refine what we're producing and creating material that's valuable for business listeners. So again, you can find us on Apple Podcasts at AI in Business or on SoundCloud, on Spotify, or any other audio channels. If you're not already subscribed, be sure to stay tuned. Otherwise, that's all for this episode. I look forward to catching you here for our next episode on the AI in Business podcast.